Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. This is Eva Richardson, and I'm joined by Rena Glazer. Hi. Uh, we were excited to see Pro Bono in the news last week. Um, as many of, many of you are probably aware, um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that all lawyers should be required to provide pro bono legal services. So she was giving remarks at the American Law Institute's annual meeting. Um, and so she said, when it comes to improving access to justice for the poor, um, I believe in forced labor, quote, unquote, and that if I had my way, I would make pro bono service a requirement. Um, so her comments have generated a considerable amount of buzz over the past week, and we just kind of wanted to discuss the debate over mandatory pro bono and what we think here. Yeah, so we're going to offer some uh, quick hot takes on mandatory pro bono. Whenever mm -hmm. this comes up or is in the news, um, it tends to break the internet and yes. explode. Yes. <laughs> um, so for those of you who may have missed it, thanks, Eva. I think that gives everyone a great set of background to inform the discussion. Um, I wanted to start with the real question, which I think sometimes gets lost in the noise mm -hmm. about mandatory pro bono. And that is, how do we meaningfully solve the access to justice crisis, right. both on the civil side and now on the criminal side. And let's not be mistaken that universal or mandatory pro bono could ever do that. Right. Right. Pro bono is a tool and an important tool, and we work hard all day, every day, yes. trying to increase pro bono and make it as meaningful and as effective and efficient and impactful as possible, but it will never be the solution mm -hmm. to the access to justice problem. For that, we need resources, right? Yep. We need to fully fund legal services, and there's no getting around that, and pro bono yeah. will never plug that gap right. totally. So I don't want to lose sight of the core solution, mm -hmm. which we all know what it is, mm -hmm. and the core... Um, value here by, in a way, being a little distracted from, yes. <laughs> from, some, from the, the shiny light of mandatory pro bono. And we can think about how, you know, in the real world, even to do more and more impactful pro bono, we need our legal services partners. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to greatly increase our pro bono army, which we, of course, would love to see happen, they can't do more legal services and we can't do more pro bono without our legal services partners, exactly. right? Pro bono matters. We can't just clap our hands and wave a wand and all of a sudden, poof, on my desk comes perfectly packaged an amazing pro bono project. This takes work. It, um, clients need to be vetted mm -hmm. and met and matched and pro bono lawyers need to be trained and mentored and supervised. And all of that takes resources, exactly. right? So we have to work hard. We have to double down to make sure that the Legal Services Corporation is fully funded. Mm -hmm. That's not happening. And all the legal services providers, um, no matter their area of expertise and the area of poverty law that they are working in, mm -hmm. um, has the resources they need. That That's how we make the pro bono... Um, landscape work better right. and work better for our clients. They, they don't work separate and divorced from each other. Yeah. And, and you can think about it, it, it makes sense just in any volunteer context. I mean, we are welcoming our summer volunteers next week. Mm -hmm. And 
they don't arrive just out of thin air, (laughs) right? They have to be recruited and interviewed and selected, and then projects have to be um, arranged and crafted and explained, and they need to be nurtured, and then they need to be given feedback. Otherwise, it's babysitting, right? It's not making meaningful contributions to our work or obviously to clients and, and to the access to justice cause. And if we think back, and I don't really mean to dwell in confusing or frustrating nostalgia, but if we think back to um, the Great Recession mm-hmm. and the economic crisis of 2008, 2009, 2010, you all may remember what happened with what we conveniently or as a shorthand called deferred associates, yeah. right? The um, markets crashed. There was the crisis in housing and banking. And for law firms, commercial work dried up and dried up very quickly. And law firm hiring, as you all may know, happens a year or two in advance, Mm -hmm. right? So law students who were set to graduate and start at firms that fall, suddenly there really wasn't work for this great influx of new attorneys. So firms deferred their start dates, mm-hmm. which was called deferred associates. They said, you still have an offer, you may still come, but in a year, right? Take a gap year. Yeah. And you can go play golf, you can go sit on a beach, you can go practice your stand-up, you could go write <laughs> the next great American novel, or maybe you would like to do some public interest work, mm-hmm. right? Do some pro bono, develop some skills, contribute some good, right. and do something law-related for the year, even while you're not working here at the firm. And this became a very big movement in the pro bono movement for law firms and for legal services organizations because you couldn't just take all these recent law grads and plunk them somewhere, right, and affect them to be fully functional contributors to the mission and mandate of the organization. That took space. Where were they going to work? Right. right? They need a desk. They need a computer. They mm-hmm. need paper. They need pens. And they need supervision. And all of that took resources. Mm-hmm. So effective programs, and we study this both in real time and after the fact, required contributions from the sponsoring law firms mm-hmm. to make this work, right? It takes resources yes. to make this work. So I think this is another example of that where the bottom line is we have to fund our legal services providers. And then we can help them build capacity and leverage their expertise through pro bono work. But you can't get around that core need right. Right, of a vital and functioning legal services community. So that's one hot take when we talk about the M word. We also like to talk about what the attitudinal push of mandates are, right? People in general and lawyers in particular, and our friend Dr. Larry Richard at Lawyer Brain will tell us, (laughs) don't like to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. And that's very true for lawyers. And I think if you followed any social media since last week, you saw a lot of pushback, right? I'd rather surrender my law license than be told what to do. And involuntary servitude, you know, (laughs) no. Um, And these are people who might otherwise be doing pro bono work, right? Mm -hmm. But when you feel like it's being rammed down your throat, um, that is an atmospheric that is hard to get around. Um, And we'll come back to that in a few minutes, but 
that attitude does play a role. And yes, and I think Justice Sotomayor talked about this, that we're lawyers and we're going to live up to our professional responsibilities and mm -hmm. everything that we do is going to be done in compliance with our ethical rules. And I think that's definitely a noble aspiration. But there is a concern about the quality and competency of pro bono services being delivered. Mm -hmm. This is not make work. This is not mock work. Right. This is vital, important legal work that affects critical functioning mm -hmm. of human beings, right? Whether you're going to maintain custody of your children, whether you can stay in your house, mm -hmm. whether you're going to get medical care that you need. It is critically important and we can't be giving people second-class justice. No. And you do wonder if people feel like, I don't want to be doing this, will they be doing right. a good will job? Right, will the quality suffer? Right, yeah. just as a practical mm -hmm. matter. Like, yes, as an aspiration, we're going to do an amazing job, yeah. but practically, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. And we spend a lot of time just with people who have signed up for pro bono work, right, exactly. on quality control mm -hmm. and supervision and making sure that the pro bono work being done is of high quality and to the highest standards. And we know, unfortunately, sometimes it isn't, right? right? And we've had that here where people have done work for us and it's been, you know, to quote our friends at Mad Men, not great, Bob, <laughs> just... Not great. And we're human beings, yeah. you know. We're all, you know, not robots. So that will happen. But you do wonder if people feel really bitter <laughs> about what they're being asked to do, whether they will embrace it in the spirit of um, quality mm -hmm. and compassion and sensitivity and zealous advocacy that, that we need here. So I think that that is a concern. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, and we're not gonna belabor this because there are so many, um, pragmatic concerns, implementation concerns, oh, yeah. right? Who would decide what counts, right? right? As, as we administer a pro bono challenge, we spend a lot of time, right? Get deciding so many questions. Yeah. what counts, <laughs> exactly. right? who's gonna be the pro bono czar yeah. that decides this. That actually takes resources. These are not self-implementing. Um, we deal, as you, know, you listeners know, with a pretty small slice of the profession, right? Large law firms. Mm -hmm. And actually, given the demographics of lawyers in this country, that is sort of a small segment, yeah, right? Definitely. It's who we are yeah. concerned about almost exclusively, but it's a small segment of the profession. And it's one thing to do as we do, work all day, every day, to encourage lawyers at large, law firms to do pro bono. They have infrastructure and resources and delivery systems yep. that make pro bono work. What about solo practitioners? What about unemployed lawyers? Right. What about underemployed lawyers, mm -hmm. staff lawyers, contract lawyers, people who've taken time out from working to care for their family, to, yeah. to raise a family, people who are working in non-legal environments. Mm -hmm. They're working in business. They're working for startups. They're doing a host of things that lawyers can do. Lawyers in academia, yeah. government lawyers, mm -hmm. lawyers who live in places where they are not admitted to the bar. Right. 
in-house lawyers. It's a very complicated legal landscape, and what it takes for each t demographic to do pro bono really varies. Yes, definitely. And it's a big issue to overcome individual obstacles to participation. So this would require a lot of thinking and a lot of resources and a big effort. And one of the reasons, I think you heard us talk about this when we did our look back on the challenge, mm -hmm. right? That we like to look at three-year yes. snapshots right. because we, we live complicated lives, as do law firms, and it's hard to expect per a perfect balance yeah. each and every year, right? So if someone's in a personal crisis, mm -hmm. can we really mandate that they do a certain amount of pro bono this year? Exactly. Physically, they may be ill. They may not be able to, mm -hmm. and we have to be sensitive and treat people like people. Right. And keep that in mind. Exactly. And I think that was some of the noise about this as people feel threatened by mandates, yes. right? And that universal solutions mm -hmm. sound good, but they don't work for Very individuals. Hard to yeah. At times, at times. And we want to be sensitive to that and to the difficulties there. Um, whether a pro bono mandate could work for an institution, I think is a good question. Yes. And one that we've talked about exactly. on the Pro Bono Happy <laughs> Hour. So if that's something that's of interest to you, I don't think we should mine all of those plus and minuses yeah, and the, yeah. how difficult it is and the considerations and whether it's worth it. But I would encourage people, if you haven't already, to listen to the great episode with Kathy Ockrock yep. from Blank Rome, yeah. who goes into some fantastic detail about how the firm decided to institute a mandatory mm -hmm pro bono policy, their considerations, the pluses, the minuses, and, yeah. and how it's going. Right. And, it's really um, fascinating. Yeah, and Dave and mm -hmm. Eva, you guys did a great job with that episode. And I think there's yeah. a lot of learning there. This is a, mm -hmm. an area that's piqued your interest because oh, of current events or what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it raises a question just to dial down this, this part of our discussion, and that is, if something is mandatory, what are the consequences for non-performance? Yeah. Right? And, and Kathy talks a little bit about that. At a firm level, you can have carrots and you can have sticks. Yes. And obviously, in the brief comments from last week at the ALI, you know, the, it, there was not any sort of detail about this. And so what are right. we really saying the consequences would be? Are we going to suspend people's law licenses? Are we going to make them do more pro bono? Are they going right. to have to go to training? Are they going to have to pay a fine? Uh, you know, we could kind of brainstorm all of this. Yeah. But it's an interesting academic and philosophical discussion. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm thinking that maybe... Um, we could transition to some different hot takes, which are, you know, before we realistically think about a world of mandatory or a kinder term, maybe universal pro bono, mm -hmm. let's think about some other bold steps that, that we could take and whether that could help us advance the cause of access to justice. So one that admittedly is wacky, but I think could be impactful, mm -hmm. is this idea of voluntary plus pro bono. And I think it's taking a page out of behavioral um, economists and behavioral psychologists. Mm -hmm. And it's thinking about, do you have to opt into something or do you have to opt out of yeah. something? And how that triggers participation. And if you read or think about retirement savings, mm -hmm. 
I don't know, Eva, if you remember this, but it used to be for every 401k or retirement plan, an employee had to sign up. Right, yes. you have to opt in. Right, right. And enrollment rates were relatively low. Mm-hmm. People weren't saving. And so behavioral economists said, okay, we need to change that. Instead of the default being an opt in, we need to basically have everyone included yes. unless you want to opt out. Yeah. Right. And we're seeing this with some voter registration mm-hmm. states, right? Where yeah, they definitely. say, okay, when you turn 18, you're just going to automatically be enrolled unless you want to opt out. Out. Right. And by making the affirmative action an opt-out rather than an opt-in, mm-hmm. participation rates go up. Yeah. So can we do that with pro bono, it right? so much sense. When everyone yeah. is newly admitted to right. the bar, you're automatically on the volunteer roll, right? You are opted in to the pro yes. bono landscape unless you affirmatively want to opt out. Mm-hmm. And that would trigger a really um, new way to look at and streamline and make more efficient ways to distribute pro bono work, yeah, right? Definitely. And arguably more resources. Mm-hmm. But think how that could change the landscape of potential pro bono lawyers ready and able to volunteer. Yeah, yeah. So something like that might be worth mm-hmm. trying, right? In, in, in maybe a small pilot project mm-hmm. and, and see what that does. Another demographic where mandatory, you know, to use the M word pro bono might make sense, mm-hmm. it is with law students. Yes, absolutely. And so Eva, what do you think? As a soon-to-be law student I know. yourself, <laughs> do you think that this is, it has any legs? I, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I, I definitely do, um, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it, among the many different requirements that law students face, why not have a pro bono requirement? I think it fits in perfectly. Um, it's also, we've heard time and time again that if you expose young lawyers to pro bono early on in their careers during law school, they're more likely to continue it later on in their life and have a really passionate, um, deep commitment to pro bono throughout their careers. Um, it's, it raises their awareness of issues that low-income people face. Many students might come to law school just to have, and have no idea what's out there. Um, and kind of having this direct engagement with clients, it can it can really change their outlook on legal services and, and what, what they should be doing in their careers later on. Um, and also, I mean, in a practical standpoint, it provides great professional development for law students. Um, it provides them a chance to kind of have one-on-one client contact um, and gives them a chance to draft documents, do negotiations. Um, they're, they're getting all of this professional development experience that they wouldn't otherwise get necessarily. So... In, yeah. Within a structure, right? right? We're not right. just having people be free agents right. to go find their own opportunities, and the burden then isn't really on the legal services yes. organizations. Yes, it's on the law schools, but they can figure out as they are working on uh-huh. clinical legal education, mm-hmm. expanding experiential education opportunities, exactly. how to have structure, yes. right? And oversight and training, there, yeah. support, mm-hmm. supervision, all things that are really important to making this work. And as law schools are continually rethinking, yeah. right, given the marketplace mm-hmm. and demographics and the economics of the profession, yeah. it's a live lab. Exactly. Right? Yeah. for thinking how we can better inculcate pro bono into the next generation mm-hmm. of, of lawyers. Yeah, and especially if, if associates take that, uh, law firms take this kind of commitment to pro bono, that can have a um, an upward effect on their senior uh, attorneys that they work with. So it, it, if you kind of bring it in from the bottom up. Yeah, can, totally. We think about pro bono yeah. being top down right. and bottom up. And I think this has been 
um, you know, as someone with gray hair who's now been around for a long time, this has been a really big sea change, mm-hmm. right, in terms of um, young lawyers, recruits, law students, and, and, and junior associates feeling comfortable yeah. basically demanding pro bono opportunities, right. right, from being scared 20-plus years ago to being branded mm-hmm. as not a true law firm lawyer, right? Right. If I mention pro bono, they're going to think I'm a poser mm-hmm. and I'm really just, you know, a public interest lawyer here, to totally acceptable yeah. and saying, this is important to me. And this is how I'm going to make decisions about where I'm going to work and the type of firm that I want to be at. Mm -hmm. And not only do I want it to be on your website and in your marketing materials, but I want to know that there are opportunities, meaningful opportunities for me and my colleagues to to do pro bono at Mm -hmm. the firm. Um, So that's an exciting development. And you would think it would only keep going. I know, definitely. And people would bring expertise. I mean, if you... Once you go off, let's just as a hypothetical, not so hypothetical, decide I'm going to spend, you know, my time helping survivors of domestic violence and I will have really figured out what their legal issues are and how best to serve them. Uh Well, when you get to the firm, you'll be an expert, you know, and just because you're a first year associate doesn't mean you don't have substantive expertise. And not only will you be ready to hit the ground running and do pro bono work in this area, you'll be able to supervise people. Uh You'll be a resource. You will help be a center of excellence, you know, at your firm because you will have developed subject matter expertise. And that's really one of the places that the legal world is going, Mm -hmm. valuing all kinds of expertise. Exactly, yeah. So a couple other hot takes and things that we could be doing to increase the value and the visibility of pro bono short of a mandate. How about pro bono as a criteria for leadership? Mm -hmm. If you are going to be a lawyer in a leadership position, the bench, public office, a bar association board, or other position, shouldn't you have constantly undertaken pro bono and have a personal track record? Yeah. It's sort of a requirement without being a global yeah, mandate. Yeah, that's an but interesting idea, definitely. Let's, you yeah. know, let's see how that would work. Right. Let's take another look at model rule 6.1. This is um, generally uh, where pro bono is defined for the American lawyer profession writ large, but we need to look at whether it's too broad mm-hmm. and whether the focus is tied as it should be to legal work on behalf of low-income and disadvantaged clients. Let's look at all the players in the legal economy and make sure they're able to have skin in the pro bono game. So bar associations, Mm -hmm. courts, access to justice commissions, in-house legal departments, legal services organizations, funders, faith-based groups. Mm -hmm. We all have to be there. We Mm -hmm. all have to be at the table. We all have to be talking. We all have to show our support, again, in terms of funding for legal services organizations. We've done a good job, and there are groups operating, Voices for Civil Justice comes Mm -hmm. to mind, right? Raising the visibility of the problem and educating the public. And time and time again, we see that it's not necessarily... Um, opposition, Mm -hmm. it's just ignorance, right? People have no idea. 
Lack so of awareness. It's, yeah. it's education, it's awareness, mm-hmm. it's raising the visibility. Let's talk about pro bono reporting because often we're asked, right, please send us information about where pro bono is mandatory. And we'll be like, mm, do you mean mandatory reporting? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, people get a little bit confused about the lay of the land. We need to make sure that reporting is meaningful and that we as a community are looking at the data that we're getting, we're assessing it, and we're making evidence-based decisions. So I think the New York experiment is a good example, right, where, um, and we've talked, and we've written about it, Mm -hmm. and I think it was part of our Esther tribute, right? We included her opining Mm -hmm. at the time when New York adopted a 50-hour rule Mm -hmm. for admission to the bar. So again, mandatory for a certain segment of the demographic. Exactly, Um, They put resources into how to implement it. And now we're starting to have sort of year over year, we should be able to have data, right? How many newly admitted lawyers, how much pro bono are they doing? Mm -hmm. What kind of pro bono are they doing? We need to look at this and see what's working, see what the law schools think Mm -hmm. who have now had to get Pro right. bono, right, yeah, for, curious, for students. Yeah. We have to look at what the individual young lawyers think. Mm-hmm. We have to look at what the legal services providers in New York and elsewhere exactly, think yeah. of having, you know, sort of had to scale up to provide this. And what can we learn from that? Mm-hmm. And that will inform decision-making going forward. Um, triage and simplification. You know, we're never going to have a lawyer for everyone, for all purposes. And it may be that everyone does not need a lawyer for all purposes. Mm -hmm. So we need to see what can we really do? How are we diagnosing clients' legal problems? Mm -hmm. And how can we best and in the least costly legal intervention possible get people what they need? So there's tremendous progress on that front looking at unbundled legal services, looking at mediation and negotiation, looking at beefing up assistance for pro se Mm -hmm. individuals, court-based assistance centers, using technology to help people. Um, All options are on the table, but I think everyone will agree that our legal system is too complex. It's too adversarial, it's too time intensive, it's too expensive. So what fixes can we make that would make the system yes. function um, better and more appropriately you know, for everyone? Um, and again, with sort of evidence-based experiments, how New York has an experiment with mm-hmm. the navigators, Washington State has yep. an experiment with training non-lawyers to provide certain levels of assistance. Mm-hmm. What are we learning? I know. Those are two good examples. Right. Mm -hmm. So is that working? What's working? What's not working? Right. Um, Who's threatened by it? Mm -hmm. Is it valid? Let's do some analysis. Yes, exactly. And have some informed-based decision-making. We write and think a lot about collaboration. Yes. Right. How can we do more together? Mm -hmm. Let's keep focusing on that. Let's bring more people to the table. I think in this discussion, if you just kind of look at the internet and read what people have written, is hyper-focused on individual representation. And that's critically, critically important. Mm -hmm. 
but what can we do in terms of system reform to make things work better for everyone? So when there are systemic fixes mm-hmm. that can have a big impact, are we spending enough time and energy looking yeah. at that? And our individual work can inform our systemic work. Mm-hmm. And the, both sides are critically important. Yes, absolutely. And go hand in hand. Um, so I think those are just some examples of novel, um, obvious, but unimplemented, right, right. and somewhat off the wall and wacky suggestions mm-hmm. that we might look at further to improve access to justice before we touch the third rail of the M word. Yes, definitely. Great. Well, I think that wrap things, uh, wraps things up. Um, one other side note is that we, as we've previ- previously mentioned, uh, we'll be having more mailbag episodes. So please send us your questions or comments or um, concerns, anything. Just feel free to send it to us at probono at probonoinst.org. Yeah, and this is a great topic to write in about, yes, right? Mandatory do. pro bono, what do you think? Or yes. any of the suggestions that we've quickly run through today? Yeah. And what others do you have? We mm-hmm. barely um, got to the tip of the iceberg Oh, I here, know. There's so, so much to cover. Yeah. yeah. We'd love to hear from you. Great. Thanks for joining us.